Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, you're listening to Babbage, a weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show, we discuss why technology firms get so criticized by those that use them. The new rules of the digital economy are really the rules for maintaining the old economy. And we'll take a trip back in time to the year 821, to the lands of Norse mythology to find out what caused a famine in Europe in the early Middle Ages. It seemed like hell on earth. The Vikings and the Norse were thinking that this was Fimblewinter, the three years preceding Ragnarok, where gods would die. And finally, we'll explore the true meaning of beauty as seen through the eyes of a convolutional neural network in artificial intelligence. We're able to train the AI to be able to pick out different features and recognize what is actually scenic. But first, we use the internet every day, and it improves our lives immensely. And as we know, technology is the bedrock of economic growth and productivity. So why is it that so many of the biggest technology firms come in for so much criticism? For 25 years, Douglas Rushkoff has been a close observer, analyst, and cultural critic of technology and society. He is the author of 15 books, and most recently of Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity. Of course, as you can tell, he joins me in the studio now to talk about these paradoxes of digital life. Douglas, welcome. Thanks for having me. Why do you think this paradox exists between people who embrace technology and use it all the time, yet are very uneasy with the companies that supply it? I think we intuitively sense that digital technology offers a few alternatives to the way business has been done for the last couple of hundred years. Yet we see digital businesses essentially doubling down on the old style of extractive capitalism rather than moving towards something a bit more distributed and fun and value creating. So let me challenge you on that. Extractive capitalism might be British Petroleum, you know, doing deals in terrible places and bringing out black sludge from the earth. Facebook is doing deals to get our data, but it seems like it's less extractive. It seems like it's a little bit nicer. Why should Facebook be tarred with the same brush as BP? A company like Facebook is really looking first and foremost on how to sell stock, how to increase its stock value. And it does that by pushing its own growth. And it pushes its own growth by burrowing further and further into people's data. The things that Facebook could do to actually serve people, uh, its original mission, which may have been to connect people socially, um, is just not as profitable as surveilling people and selling their data. So what could have been a social media platform that connected people in really new and profound ways has been surrendered to the needs of a company to sell data about its users. Now, we should be careful about what we mean by that. They're not really selling the data, but what they're doing is they're selling the users and the data about who the users are to the advertisers. 
Yes, but Facebook's real game is using our past activities to determine what our future choices are going to be and then not only marketing those choices to us before we know we're going to make them, but trying to make us more dependably and predictably make those choices. Now, in general, when you look at technology platforms, you come to solutions that look like the small is beautiful approach to the world in which you see decentralized, diverse, smaller companies playing the role rather than these larger platforms. Tell me more about the solutions that you see. Once the means of production seem to be distributed through digital technology to lots of different places, it seemed that production itself could be more distributed, that the creation of value could be a bit more bottom-up, that we could see a retrieval of some of the peer-to-peer mechanisms that had been long obsolesced by industrial capitalism. And we saw the beginnings of that, but once we moved into the venture capital mode of internet production, it seemed that once a young person had a great idea, they would get VC, and the VC would expect a 100x return, so they would have the young developer pivot away from what ever great idea they had for a sustainable company and move instead toward this kind of pyramid scheme of digital growth. Let me play the critic and say you're you're a techno hippie. Go back to Woodstock. This is this is the this is the system's just evolved in this way and we can't harken back to this bygone day of a nation of small shopkeepers. I would call you the luddite. The new rules of the digital economy are really the rules for maintaining the old economy. So you get Amazon going in and so-called disrupting the book industry. What they did was took a sustainable working industry that could have actually blossomed in the Internet era and extracted all the value from it. So what, what I'm arguing is not to go back, but to retrieve some old models that were artificially repressed. And these are way back from medieval times, peer-to-peer currencies and local value production, and actually expressing them in new digital means. Douglas, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Next, a quick jump back in history to the early Middle Ages. For many reasons, these times were fairly grim, but there was one period in particular which stood out for its dreariness. For a few years after 821, much of Europe was struck by freezing temperatures and famine. Many people had blamed it on God's wrath. Yet it seems that we finally found out what caused it all. And here to tell us is Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent. Hiya, Ken. How's it going? Really well. So, Matt, how bad was it back then? The summer of 821 was just kind of bad. It was wet. It was cold. There was a crappy harvest. People sensed that not all was well. And then winter came, and it was terrible. Rivers like the Danube and the Seine and the Rhine, which never freeze, froze so completely that not only could people walk across them, but horse carts started using them as bridges. And that was just that was just the winter of 821. Things went worse from there. You had famine, plagues, and springtime had horrendous hailstorms that destroyed all the crops. And then the winters of 822 and 823 were just as bad or worse. It seemed like hell on earth. The Vikings and the Norse were thinking that this was Fimble winter, the three years preceding Ragnarok, where gods would die. 
many priests in France and England were arguing that God was angry about something. So there was a lot of, of fear, not too different from this concept of winter is coming in uh, George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Okay, so now that we have scientists who are looking at the issue, not just simply medieval monks, tell us what have the scientists found out. We've known for quite some time that something volcanic was likely afoot because you can look at the ice sheets in Greenland and you can see a spike in airborne chemicals that suggests that there was, in fact, a very large eruption around roughly the period of the 820s. The trouble with ice sheet information is it could be anywhere in the world. It could be in Indonesia, it could be in, in China, it could be in North America. And so no one's known where there was a volcanic eruption and precisely you know, what sort of eruption it was. And so what did the researchers do? The researchers were looking at a, a, a large number of trees that were exposed in 2003 by a severe spring flood. The trees, when they started looking at them, dated to the 9th century. And more specifically, they realized that many of them would yield information associated with the 820s. That was intriguing because the Vikings, who eventually settled Iceland, were rather busy, you know, raping, burning, and pillaging the coasts of England and France in the 820s. They hadn't settled on Iceland yet. But these trees were there, and these trees all got knocked down in some horrendous event that occurred seemingly during the early 9th century. So the task that the researchers had to put to themselves was figuring out whether or not the trees all went down at the same time in the 820s related to some sort of a volcanic event. And as they looked closer and closer, that's exactly what they found. Sounds like a case of forensic geology. It actually involves even more mythology. Because if you look at trees, you just see a bunch of rings. And there's no way to identify precisely when a tree went down unless you have some sort of major event that gets recorded in the tree ring. And that is associated with another bit of godly belief. Because the Anglo-Saxons have it recorded in their, in their chronicles that there was this inexplicable red crucifix that appeared in the sky in 775 AD. Historians have that pretty well noted. What's really interesting is that physicists and astronomers are, are pretty certain that this was a cosmogenic event that caused a very large surge in northern lights all around the world, particularly in northern England. What's really cool is that folks who look at fossilized trees know that that event got recorded in tree rings with uh, carbon isotopes. You see a really large spike of carbon isotopes in association with that event. So these researchers on Iceland started looking at the tree rings, and sure enough, they found that 775 spike that was associated with the red crucifix in the sky that the Anglo-Saxons saw. And then they just counted the rings out from there, and that's what allowed them to realize, wow, Every single tree in this forest went down in 821. They all went down in the same direction, and that direction is opposite this gargantuan volcano known as Katla, which sits under 700 meters of ice today and periodically has blown her top and caused a huge flood of water to come down in some random direction and kill people. In this case, it killed an awful lot of trees. Now, is there a chance that the volcano may erupt again? Yeah, absolutely. She's one of the most uh, active volcanoes on Iceland. The last time she blew her top in a major way, it was just a little over 100 years ago. But she's had phases of activity since then. Um, that really large eruption of 821 is interesting because it shows us 
just what we can expect from a really serious eruption happening today. I think that there is a nice moral to George R. R. Martin's story. If you follow Thrones, which is certainly worthwhile, uh, there is this long-running narrative that humans are so busy fighting over who gets the power in politics, there's very little attention being paid to the fact that the White Walkers are coming. A lot of our current issues with Brexit and Trump and the EU and everything else seem to ignore the fact that climate change is coming or that eruptions can occur and devastate the planet and very little attention gets paid to that outside of the scientific communities. So I think that this is perhaps a wake-up call that reminds us that our fictions are important to pay attention to and that certainly something like this could devastate the planet for years and that we should be ready. Matt, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ken. Finally, what does beauty mean to you? Or in the words of the poet John Keats, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quite for us and asleep, full of sweet dreams and health and quiet breathing. But does true beauty lie within nature, or can man improve upon it? Perhaps artificial intelligence can help us decide, specifically a convolutional neural network. Here joining me in the studio to explain more is our science writer, Erin Winnick. Hi. Erin, how is artificial intelligence being used to determine beauty? By feeding it crowdsourced data of what people think about different images through a website called Scenic or Not, people can go in and rate all these pictures on a scale of 1 to 10 and how scenic they think these images are. There are images from all around the UK and Great Britain, and now Based on that, we're able to train the AI to be able to pick out different features and recognize what is actually scenic. So this is pretty plain vanilla artificial intelligence. It's based on labeled data from the crowdsourcing of people saying this is scenic, this isn't, and then it takes a new data set and makes the same estimation. Yeah, similarly, the biggest thing about it is it's able to pick out the specific features that are in these different images and then compile those. So if it sees a tree, an image, an ocean, a mountain, and put all that together, it can piece together all the different pieces that it's pulled out of these images. So it's not really the machine that's telling us what is beautiful. It's people doing it, and the machine just does it at scale. Correct. And then now, based on that information, we're able to do it in other places outside of Great Britain and apply it to more urban settings, looking at churches or cottages in some areas or a green space in an urban area as well. So why do I want this technology? So interestingly, researchers have also found a correlation between the well-being of people living in a space and the scenicness of an area. So if in the future we're able to now learn what people perceive as more scenic, we can then design the cities and landscaped areas to be able to be better for us and our well-being and potentially have better health in the long run. Now, Aaron, if I saw a photograph of a concrete jungle, I'd know I wouldn't want to live there. And if I saw a photograph of a park and trees and a little bit of a pond there, I know that that would be more pretty. I wonder if science is really making a big advance with this. Yeah. One of the interesting discoveries it actually found was that green spaces don't necessarily translate to more beauty. So that's something that has kind of been held for a while, but a flat, open green area might not actually be perceived as more scenic. It needs to have more trees. It needs to have more variances in the elevation, which apparently actually comes from our evolutionary preferences. So we don't like to be in open places where we have no cover. We like to explore areas that have more complexities to the area. So by learning this, we can better design these green spaces in urban areas. Has the artificial intelligence research 
helped us change what we do in terms of urban planning, or is that basically a separate outcome? That was the goal of this project. So now they're taking this and applying it to new areas and hopefully going to feed this data to designers so that in the future they can pre-check their designs and run them through this to be able to know what, what they might be able to do to help increase it to a higher scenic level. I'm still mystified why this would be so useful. Clearly a designer would be trying to make something as beautiful as possible mm-hmm. and knowing that things had more trees and be greener would be nicer than the lack thereof. Mm-hmm. So why do we think that they're doing something that's just so special? It's the combination of features. So by being able to run these things through the software, we're able to now know by combining these specific things, it can add something or it can take away. And additionally, it can take a look at colors and other things beyond just individual features. It can look at the overall scene. So obviously gray is not necessarily the prettiest color, but looking at colors like red and white and things like that in design can also be implemented uh, by the designers as they go through the process. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Babbage. Don't forget you can check out the new blog for the podcast at medium.economist.com. And if you like our journalism, consider taking out a subscription. You can do so at subscription.economist.com. You can find all the articles related to what we discussed on the show on our website and in London. This is The Economist. 